everyone. I'm Denise Garth, Chief Strategy Officer at Majesco, and you're listening to the Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast series. Follow along as I interview the best and brightest leaders in the insurance industry and insure tech landscape to bring you the latest in digital transformation, innovation, industry trends, challenges, and opportunities, as well as next-gen technologies. We use our experience to anticipate what's next without losing sight of what's now. Stay tuned to find out your next now. Welcome, everybody, to today's Future of Insurance podcast, Industry Leaders. I am thrilled to have Tom Bakewell, the CIO of Nonprofits Insurance Alliance, joining me today. It's going to be a fascinating conversation about transformation. Tom, welcome. Hi, thanks, Denise. It's good to talk to you again and good to be here. So, Tom, I always like to start every podcast with everybody giving a little bit of better background about themselves. Also, if you can give a little bit of background on nonprofits and then our partnership. Sure, I'd love to. So, I've been with the Nonprofits Insurance Alliance now for five and a half years. My first foray into the insurance world, I knew nothing about insurance when I started. I didn't even pay the premiums for my personal insurance. My wife does. So I really had zero knowledge of insurance. It's been a pretty remarkable journey learning both insurance in general, but the way we conduct business at the Nonprofits Insurance Alliance. We are a 33, 34-year-old nonprofit ourselves. We are a risk retention group founded by Pamela Davis, and we serve only nonprofits. And we have about 25,000 insureds across the United States. We do business in 18 states plus the District of Columbia. We write specialty lines and uh, property and casualty. We have actually been working with Majesco now for about four years implementing the full policy administration suite. So policy, billing, and claims, as well as the data warehouse and Majesco business analytics platform all at the same time. And it's been really, really interesting. When I started here five and a half years ago, all of our systems were custom made visual basic six based systems that really drove our business. And we made the decision to replace them. I can get into more of that later, but largely we've done this all in a virtual way through the pandemic, which has created a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges for us. But one of the things that has just really leapt off the the Zoom screens, if you will, is how we formed not a vendor-client relationship, but a partnership relationship with Majesco. We are both invested in the success of this implementation and quite frankly, the long-term success of each other. So it's been a really remarkable journey, what I'm proud of and what I'm very, very pleased to be a part of. We're thrilled to have you as one of our customers in our customer community. And we so much think in the same way that it's not a really a vendor insurer relationship. It's really about a partnership because I think together we both succeed when we take that approach. Agreed. I remember vividly when we first met, we were on a panel together for an industry event. One of the things that really stood out to me is your background, background outside of insurance. You've really been involved in transformation initiatives and, you know, technology outside of insurance. And you really bring an interesting outside in perspective to what you're doing there at Nonprofits Insurance Alliance. 
kind of talk about what your initial thoughts were about insurance in terms of transformation, our use of technology, our pace of adoption, and how did you really leverage that outside-in experience to define and accelerate NIA's transformation journey? It's interesting. I've spent my entire career outside of NIA in Silicon Valley and probably the last 20 years or so running IT in high-tech companies that serve the IT community. So very, very different than the insurance sector and certainly different than the nonprofit insurance sector. And when I joined, it was interesting. A lot of of my friends in high tech uh, sort of gave me a, a tough time about it that, you know, insurance is really very old, slow, almost stoic industry. They got one of them right. You know, it is a pretty old industry of our economy. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been around for a while. But quite frankly, if you look at the, the sort of transition and supply chain and how long that took us to automate, and then financial services took less time to automate. And now insurance services are taking even less. We've kind of leveraged the pain and the growth of technology. And we're now seeing the fruits of that. I think that the rate of change here from a uh, 33, 34 year old company, the rate of change here was really based upon understanding our vision. And our vision is to provide unparalleled products and service and support to the nonprofit industry. Then taking that vision of what we're trying to accomplish as an organization and going through a refinement process to make sure, yeah, we got it right. We, we're understanding why we're all here, gaining that agreement with all of the stakeholders in the organization before we ever took a step towards implementing technology. It's really important to be able to separate those two. One of the taglines that we have in IT here at, at NIA is that we transform technology into business value. There's really no other reason to have technology than than to garner that value. But pace of that implementation should be culturally specific to each organization. And for us, that meant understanding who we are as an organization and who we are as a team trying to change the organization without breaking the culture. And that was the, the biggest challenge, much more so than, than implementing technology. We all know how to do that. This was how do we make it so that the technology that we're implementing not only supports our vision, but mirrors our culture. And so that required fine line of walking between project management, government, governance, and, you know, direction to blending that with understanding and communication and engagement. And that matched our style and our culture. And that's what's been so, so unique and interesting for me, because we have really done quite a bit in the last four years as we've been on this journey from saying, hey, we got to do something different to wow, we're at the end stages of implementing all of this in a relatively short period of time. I want to dive into that just a little bit more because I think that's one of the things that the approach that you've taken and that outside-in perspective is so crucially important because too often in this industry and in the many different roles that I've had over the years of, of my career, well, that's the way we do it. Well, that's the way we've always done it. 
And that really inhibits the ability to say, but is there a better way to do it, particularly to support a customer? This level of transformation that you're talking about, it really takes a combination of that, you know, the organizational culture, the people, but it's also leadership that is really critical to have those three pulling together to create that success. How have you been able to keep all three aspects of that really focused? What kind of leadership has it really taken to help people see that there could be a better way to do it that fits the vision, that fits the culture, and will help people actually have better jobs in the end? Boy, you know, if I had to summarize that in two words, it would be genuine influence. And and let me kind of explain that. Again, if we go back to understanding our vision and our culture, the ability to really, in a very genuine fashion, ask the question why four or five times. Research says if you ask it five times, you're going to get the root cause of why we do something. The trick is to not irritate the heck out of folks when you're asking them five times, but it is really an important component of not only listening, but influencing the outcome of a conversation. And that's everything from you know how we collect our bills from our members, we call our customers members, to the products that we choose to bring to the market. And so asking those questions, asking how we do our business, why we do it the way we do it in such a way that allows us to have a, a really open, engaged conversation around, is this the way we want to do it in the future? while still supporting our vision. So one of the roles that I've had to play, you know, I say had to as if it was a burden, it's actually been, it's been an honor to play the role of sitting back and saying, let's have these conversations, let's see what the outcomes are, but let's make sure they're in align with who we are. It's one thing to change a business process and the underlying technology. It's quite another thing to not change the who we are at the same time. And so that was really the if you will, the governance model that I brought into this, which is let's take the great things we do and make them better with technology. That's been a bit of a challenge, but it's been a real reward. The old adage, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You really yes. want to keep those things that are really unique and really of value from your organization. No kidding. Our founder is still here. Our CEO and founder, Pamela Davis, and she's been the guiding arm for all of those conversations around how do we do something different while still maintaining who we are. So having that as a backdrop has been invaluable. Oh, I bet. You've been on quite a journey over the four plus years that you guys have been really focused in on this. Kind of talk a little bit more about where you guys have started from, where you are today, and then where do you see yourselves heading over the next couple of years? And what have been some of the learnings and best practices you've embraced on this journey that you can share? That's a lot of question. <laughs> no, but I, I'm bouncing around in my chair. I got excited by the question. So when I started five and a half years ago, we had a very, very tight group of IT developers and infrastructure that had worked for employee number two for a long, long time. And she retired. I joined the organization. We had everything except Microsoft Outlook and the associated Microsoft products. Everything was custom built to meet our needs as an organization and to grow. And we had done that fairly well. The problem is it was really old technology. And the journey started with asking my colleagues at executive staff, 
what is it that we need to do differently that we can't do today? What are the impediments to growing our business and focusing on the mission of supporting the nonprofits that our current ecosystem of technology just can't support? And that was a fascinating set of conversations at the same time I was learning the culture of the company and learning insurance, quite frankly. And so this was a really interesting exercise that challenged who we thought we were as an IT organization. And we ended up saying, yeah, we really ought not try to build our future from a technology perspective. We should find best-in-class partners and systems to help us build an entire ecosystem that allows us to do the things that we want to do. So I'll give you some examples. We've gone from obviously, you know, a SQL-based database running Visual Basic 6 applications to all SaaS-based applications that extend our reach well beyond the boundaries of our network that we have today. We have implemented data integration layers that take information from multiple exterior sources, putting them into a Snowflake data lake that our Majesco system is integrated with that allows us to make decisions based on data and information that we've captured from multiple sources, whether it be our nonprofits, tax and financial data, fraud data, IoT data. It's a wealth of information that we've been able to capture and then integrate into our business process streams that we've been unable to do with our existing legacy systems. We have implemented these not so that we can simply retire what we had, so that we can continue to leverage that technology to answer questions that we have never even been asked. So trying to put forth an environment where we can say, we have the information ecosystem that will allow us to grow without having to do this whole exercise again. Replacing all of our systems is never fun. It's always challenging but putting together an environment where we can actually leverage and grow and answer our questions in the future based on data that we've never been able to even answer or ask in the past has been really the sort of the guiding architectural light for us. I find that so interesting because I think that's one of the things that a really great lesson learned, a best practice, is thinking about the bigger picture around what you can do with data. Because, you know, we've often said it's the lifeblood of the industry, but we haven't really managed it well to be able to then kind of analyze that data and get different insights that we've never been able to get in the past. That's really an interesting learning and best practice, Tom, to really kind of think about it beyond just the core, but the data that's coming out of core along with other things and how to use that. You know, it's interesting. Our product is data. We don't have a physical product in the insurance industry. We want to help you manage risk and we want to make you whole when something bad happens, but that's all based on data. That is one of the reasons why I find this absolutely fascinating as an industry, because we have the ability, if we embrace that data and collect it from so many sources, not just the insured, but the entire marketplace, we have the opportunity to create better products, deliver better services, and respond to the needs of our insureds when something bad happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the other areas that we talked about that you mentioned that's made a huge difference, and I think is another kind of best practice and learning experience for others, is your approach to testing. 
and how you approach this, but using both your resources, but also Majesco resources, and then how your resources are going to be the trainers in that first line of defense. Talk about this approach and the business value it has and will continue to deliver. I found it really interesting and really innovative. It's actually been remarkable for us. If you look at just the word adoption, right? Adoption is the ultimate validator of the work that you've done. So if change is adopted, you know that you've done a good job. And how do you drive that level of adoption beyond, of course, engagement and, and all of the things that, that we've talked about in the past is really making sure that the product meets the needs of, of the organization. And so, you know, we've had 32 releases, construction releases to get us to the point of saying, you know, we're ready. Each of those releases was tested initially by a Majesco testing team. The value that had was they were able to provide input back to the engineering team. They were able to provide input to our internal testers on the efficacy of the release. That has been phenomenal because the handoff to my internal testers, which are subject matter experts from our policy claims and billing teams, has been not only smooth, but we receive a better tested product than when it comes simply from an engineering team. And so our subject matter experts pick up the testing relative to the use cases around that release, and we're able to provide, again, feedback to the development teams, but feedback to our internal users on where we are. We also took all of those use cases that were used by both the Majesco team and my team and created our user guides from them, both for our user acceptance testing, but also for when our production releases. We have this consistency across a multi-year effort to get us to where we are today. And that consistency has proven to be extraordinarily valuable. I think that testing in general is thought of almost after the fact, and that's a mistake. We looked at it at the beginning and said, how do we integrate testing with not only are we writing the right use cases, are we capturing the right information, but are we delivering a product that is testable to and acceptable by our end users? And so we've done that. Now, the result of it is actually a support model that we think is really, really good. And that support model is an employee comes in and says, boy, anything from, I don't remember my password to I have an issue with this particular transaction. Those subject matter experts that I just mentioned are the ones that are the first line of defense. They get that, they triage that, they send it to IT at that point. If it's something they can figure out, great. If it's not, it comes to IT. If it's something we've done on the internal development of all of our replacement systems, great, we handle that. If it's not, it goes back to Majesco as a support item. We track all that. It goes back the same path, back to the end user. It is a really efficient model for ensuring that we've got support closest to the end user because it really is the end users driving that level of support. And that has been remarkable, not just from a speed to resolution, but from an engagement and an adoption perspective, because it's the users saying, hey, this is my system, this is not IT's system. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. One of the other things that is a good concept for others to consider and a best practice 
is how you defined the concept of a minimum viable product. There's a lot of talk about an MVP out in the marketplace and always talking about that, but sometimes it ends up kind of becoming bigger than really what an MVP is meant to be. Talk about what this meant for you guys and how it reshaped your products to be meet customer needs. How did you communicate those products to customers? Yeah, it's that's interesting because when you come from an environment of older legacy products, that just screams waterfall. You know, give me your requirements, we'll write the requirements up, and some number of months or years later, we'll deliver something that we hope works. That is not a recipe I support. And so we've used the safe agile methodology along with Majesco. We've used it for our internal development, for all of the ecosystem that is linking everything together, as well as the Majesco development of the core product. And that requires sort of acceptance of what does it take to go live? And so that's the way we've kind of framed the conversation around minimum viable product. When I started having those and using that term, the general look on faces was, oh, we're not going to get what we need on day one. Uh, Well, you know, yes, you are but let's talk about what day one really looks like. And so for us, that means the ability to write new business. And our day one has that capability with everything we need in there. However, we're not going to be doing renewals and we're going to have an effective date later than our go launch date. So therefore, do we need everything at once? And the answer was no. And so having that conversation around what does it take for us to be successful with this and how do we then plan this mythical day two, right? There's lots of day two drops over the course of months following a go live. How do we plan those so that they are in the right order with the least disruption? And that's all based upon the concept of minimal viable product. And so being able to to understand that methodology, that process without frightening my end users was really a bit of a, of a language issue. And we had to, to really understand how to frame it in such a way that, that folks understood it, they supported it, they could really wrap their hearts and minds around it. Yeah, really fascinating. You know, one of the things you and I talked about is how everything that you guys have encountered in the journey that you've been on the last four years It's been massive, but you often put it in context of a book that you really love, The Crossing the Chasm, as a reference point. Talk about the entire project stream and around being about change management, and it's really crossing that chasm from the past to the future. Talk about what entails that and the importance is for an organization to kind of create success, not just for the project, but for the organization going forward and how that relates to Crossing the Chasm, which I know you love. It is a great book. I really do love it. I'm going to step back just one sentence and say, you know, Bertrand Russell, a very famous British philosopher once said, the most dangerous thing in the world is try to cross a chasm in two leaps. And so we used that as a philosophical backdrop to how we wanted to look at change management because Crossing the Chasm is all about change management. And I think the most important summary of that is people cross that, they make that leap differently. We can build remarkable plans. We can have everything defined to deliver an eloquent solution, but not everybody gets it at the same time. And so that requires a a knowledge of that and understanding of that. And quite frankly, quite a bit of patience. 
because people do make the decision to make that leap at different times. And that's anyone from, you know, some of my developers that had been here an awfully long time and had written all of the legacy products that we provide to my end users that, hey, I've done this now for the last 20 years the same way. I might not be considered an expert the day we go live with Majesco like I am today. How do we deal with that? Well, that's all change management. And we have done a really, I think, important component to this. We have three streams on this massive effort to replace everything. One of the streams has sort of two channels to it, the internal development that my team is doing, and of course, the Majesco development. And there's that intersection between them, and it's been one team, and that's been remarkable. We also, as we talked about briefly a minute ago, we talked about our testing strategy and the testing teams and how important that is. We have a third stream that we've invested in called change management, and that's around how do we drive the adoption? And a lot of folks think change management is getting ready for day one launch. And do we have user guides and do we have training and you know, do we have the support necessary on day one? That is a component of it. And it's a necessary, quite frankly, not a sufficient to be successful with change management. We had to understand where everyone was. We had to meet them where they are and help them. And some of that is at my level, being able to go from ask to tell and not doing that very often. Some of that is language, using the language that we've grown up with that isn't necessarily industry standard and baking it into our product that we're delivering and as well as our training. So trying to make people as comfortable with what we're doing as possible but I think the biggest piece to it is the thing that my wife says I should do a lot more of, which is listen. And so change <laughs> management has really been all around listening to the concerns of our individuals, making sure that we hear them and that we respond to them. And being that we are a very respectful company, how do we do that in a way that mirrors that respect? And so we've put a lot of effort, time, and focus into this and it's paying huge dividends for us. It's been an interesting journey for you personally and for nonprofits over the last four years. What do you think's next for nonprofits and what's next for the industry, Tom? Well, I think what's next for us is probably a bit of a breather. Uh, this has been a this has well been deserved a her Herculean <laughs> effort. Uh, yeah, I've done this before in Silicon Valley and said I'd never replace all my systems at once again. So uh, clearly, I don't listen to myself. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, been, it's been an effort. And so I think, uh, you know, short term, we'll take a little bit of a breather. But from an organization, we see total addressable market 501c3s, we play in about seven or 8% of that. And that total addressable market, it's interesting, a lot of people don't realize that the nonprofit sector is the third largest employment sector in the U.S. economy. We've got a massive opportunity ahead of us to reach out to help the nonprofits help those that they serve. And it may sound grandiose, uh, and you may wonder, well, how in the world does an insurance company do that? By providing the level of services that we provide. We have a whole host of member services, and we want to extend that. So how do we extend that is through data and understanding where the nonprofits are, who they are, who should we market to, how do we bring them into our ecosystem that helps us grow? It actually helps the nonprofit world. I think that we have built a technology 
ecosystem that's going to allow us to do that. And for us, that was really the goal of this whole set of initiatives. There is another component to this, which is, I said, we're in you know 18 states. So California plus 17 other states in the District of Columbia. As a risk retention group, we are trying to sponsor legislation at the federal level to allow us to write first party, so property and auto physical damage in every state in the union, which will allow us to get to continue to grow and serve the interests of the nonprofit sector. And that is one of the key reasons why we've gone through this massive exercise is to support that growth. So one of the things I like to do, Tom, is always end my podcast with the same question for everybody and no pressure, (laughs) but we've only had a couple of duplicates and I'm confident you're going to have a unique perspective. If you could pick one word or phrase to describe the future of insurance, what would it be and why? Well, my cynical self would say TV commercials. We're all tired of those. Zero sense. But really, that's a fascinating question. If I had to pick one word, it would be ubiquitous. And why would I pick that word? I love the word. I have a hard time spelling it. Thank God for spell check. But I love the word because it sums up the insurance industry. Our members or our insureds are everywhere across the United States. The data and the information that they have, they gather and share is everywhere. The data that we're collecting is from everywhere. And the information requests and questions that we are beginning to ask and answer are things we never thought of before. And so my goal is really to support that ubiquitous information delivery to my end users. And I want them to be able to ask questions that they've never asked before and get those answers all without coming to IT. And I think that it's a fascinating journey for us Because with the right tools used the right way, we're going to make insurance a part of the lives of our insureds. And that is key for me personally, and it's key for this company. I just used a phrase, use the right way. We're using artificial intelligence and machine learning in a lot of different ways in our environment today. Used the wrong way, it's going to model the insurance pool to such a degree it could break insurance, you know, saying, here's all the right people to insure because you're never going to get a claim. Well, that could break insurance and that would break the underpinnings of our economy. We have to be able to insure people with different levels of risk, but we have to do it with our eyes wide open. And so that is all based on data. You know, we're working right now to really look at making the contract, the insurance policy contract that we deliver, we're making that embedded into our process. So we've got computable contracts. At the end of the day, our insureds understand what they've done much better. We then can look at the information that comes in and make those claims settleable much faster than ever in the past. This is the value of ubiquitous data And I see it in the insurance sector, just wide open field. And I see it here and it's extraordinarily exciting. That was a a much longer winded answer than you probably wanted, but that's the word I would pick. Well, Tom, you delivered. We haven't had that term and phrase yet. So, and I love it. Ubiquitous data. That's so cool. 
Just don't ask me to spell it. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time today. You guys have been amazing to work with as partners. You've got a lot to be excited about for the organization and for your customers and for the future. What a tremendous transformation you guys have been on. We're so excited to be there with you and to see all the fruits of your results in the coming months and years ahead. Yeah, you know, I'll just say one thing on that. It's our results. We really appreciate the partnership and it's been been a lot of work, but it's actually been a lot of fun. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Tom. It's always fun talking with you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast. Subscribe to our market-leading podcast series available wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in the next time.